Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 502. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. How soon we just, the 500s are just in our trail. Yes, moving on. Did you like last week's story, Robert Silverberg? Man, man, man. Oh, to get that story, that particular story as well, man, just fantastic. Oh, so, what is coming in today's show? First up is the main fiction by Claude Lalumia. This is the Ice Age. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around, as I say, and enjoy it. So the main fiction. This is The Ice Age, originally published in Mythspring. Claude Lalamere is the author of Objects of Worship, The Door to the Lost Pages, Nocturnes and Other Nocturnes, and Venera Dreams. A Weird Entertainment. His first fiction, Bestial Axe, appeared in Interzone in 2002. Cornet, Lord, like, yeah, he's old as me. And he's published more than 100 stories, several of which have been translated into French, Italian, Polish, Spanish, Hungarian and Serbian, and adapted for stage, screen and audio and comics. In summer 2016, he was one of the 21st, 21 international short fiction writers showcased at Serbia's Kinder Short 11, The New Deal. Originally from Montreal, he now lives in Ottawa. His website is claudespages.info. The story is narrated by Diana Sanchez. Diana is a voiceover talent and actress who has performed professionally for 14 years. She has voiced various commercials, industrials and characters and specialises in very sexy, powerful female roles. Diana also consults in the geographical information system and develops customs mapping for applications for real estate and other industries. Three-dimensional visualisation of spatial data is a favourite pastime. And she has spent many hours translating real earth elevation data into unique 3D worlds. Diana's voice over demo can be heard at Lambert Studios' website, where you can get an outstanding full-service recording studio. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. This is The Ice Age by Claude Lalumiere. Distorted cars litter the bridge, quantum ice fractaling outward from their engines, 
from the circuits of their dashboards. The ice has burst from their chassis, creating random new configurations of ice, technology, and anatomy. There was no warning. In one moment, the world changed. This is the Ice Age. On our bicycles, Mark and I zigzag through the permanently stalled traffic. I try not to stare at the damaged bodies. But Mark is too engrossed to notice my queasiness. Too giddy. Goofy, even. For so many reasons, we were right to leave. Already, his face is brighter. Hey, Martha, did you see that couple in the blue SUV? I wish I hadn't. Ice snaked around their heads, crushing them together. Did you see? No, I didn't see. I don't look. At least, I try not to. Mark copes in his own way. I can't fault him for doing it differently. He never told me how he lost his parents, and I never told him how I lost mine. I should be numb to such sights by now. In the city, they'd become part of the landscape. We'd ignored them. We'd been too cold to notice, too cold to care. Barely out of the city, and already we're both thawing, at least a little. I can't bring myself to tell him to stop, so I just pedal faster. I race off the Jacques Cartier Bridge onto the highway, where the number of cars on the road decreases with distance, leaving Montreal behind, heading for... for a new world? Maybe. A different world, at least. I just want us to belong somewhere. People say the whole planet is like this now, but how can they be sure? Nothing works anymore. No television, no telephones, no computers, no radios. There's no way to communicate. But they must be right. If the rest of the world were still intact, someone would have rescued us by now. The army, the United States, someone, anyone. Martha! I look back and Mark is pedaling hard to catch up to me. I love how the wind lifts his long, dark hair. His smile is like a little boy's. Already, I've forgiven him for being so morbid, for being so wrapped up in his grotesque passion that he couldn't notice my distress. Since I've known him, Mark has always protected me. Now he's relaxing about that. I like him even more this way. He catches up to me, and we stop. We gaze at the transmuted cityscape we are leaving behind. The sunlight's reflection almost blinds me. Ice blankets the island of Montreal. The skyscrapers of the financial district have been transformed into macabre, twisted spires. The tall downtown hotels bulge with ice, the tumorous limbs of a tentacled leviathan. Like a bed of gems, the city catches the sunlight and glows. Even the heat generated by all this light cannot dispel the cold. The air carries an autumn chill, even though it's mid-July. The ice radiates cold. It never melts. 
It's so hard it can't even break. The quantum cross, the icon of the city's new order, rests atop Mount Royal. I close my eyes, not yet ready to cry, eager to forget. But the memories come anyway. All I did was shut my eyes, and the world took on a new shape. Sunday afternoon, my sister in the upstairs bathroom, obsessing over her looks. My parents driving out to the airport to meet Grandma. Me, by the living room window, reading a book, curled up in the coziest armchair. I can't remember which book. Here's what I remember. The sky was radiantly blue, and the sunlight hit the window with a harsh brightness. I had a slight headache from reading from the light. Music, a trance jungle mix spun in the CD player. I closed my eyes. The music stopped abruptly. I heard a weird crunching sound. A cool wave washed over me. My eyes snapped open. The television looked like a cubist mobile of the Milky Way. In place of the stereo, a crystal statue of a lizard demon crowned with looping horns. The lamps were now surrealist bouquets. Pearly spikes punched through the walls, especially near electrical outlets and light switches. In the distance, screams rose against the background of cold silence. I shivered. My sister Jocelyn would never meet her boyfriend again. In the upstairs bathroom, I found her skull, neck, and chest skewered by the ice sprouting from her hairdryer. I hurried outside onto streets lined with transformed buildings, arrayed with wrecked, deformed vehicles. Wires barbed with ice dangled from poles and walls, lay splattered all over. An instant alien landscape transposed onto a familiar urban grid. I ran. It was all I could do. I ran, trying to escape the affected zone. I ran and ran until I stumbled on my parents' car. They were smeared on the seat leather, pulverized by the ice. I looked around. I'd reached the expressway. As far as I could see, there was evidence of the transformation. For the first time, I noticed the new shape of the giant electric cross atop Mont Royal. A violent explosion frozen mid-blast. Towering over the city, the metamorphs cross kept a vigil over this new world, claiming dominion. Since that first day, I hadn't ventured outside. How long ago had that been? I was almost out of food. I awoke sporadically. Sometimes I snacked on stale crackers. I'd exhausted the canned goods. Days ago? Weeks? In this new ice age, the ceaseless hum of automobile traffic had finally been quieted. The sound of airplanes no longer wafted down from above. The city was silent, cold and silent. I felt that silence in the hollow of my bones. The cold had seeped into me, 
had hardened my insides, had slowed the beat of my heart. I stared out the window at the unchanging landscape and fell asleep again to dreams of silent jets falling from the sky. Even in my dreams, I heard him, yet I stayed asleep. The sounds of him taking and releasing his breath replaced the silenced engines. Eventually, I woke, his presence gradually imprinting itself on me, and then I saw him, sitting on the edge of my bed. He said, hi, neither smiling nor frowning, waiting. He had long black hair, and he was maybe a year or two older, almost a man, but he had the face of a little boy and dark eyes so big that I saw deep into him, saw how he'd been hurt by the coldness of the world. Although I'd never met him before, I knew him. In that moment, I knew him. My name is Mark, he said, louder than a whisper, but without inflection. I rested my head on his thigh, The touch of his calloused fingertips against my scalp shot sparks of warmth through my body, began thawing the cold that had settled within me. I filled my lungs with air. The smell of his sweat eased the flow of my blood. I let go of my breath and moaned drowsily. I fell asleep again. No more falling jets. Finally, I rested. Quantum ice. Call it quantum ice. Daniel coined the term. The expression stuck. We heard it whispered everywhere by Montrealers who roamed their transfigured city like zombies. Daniel was Mark's brother, but they were so different. Mark was tall and calm, handsome. Daniel was short and nervous, funny-looking in a bad way, and loud always chattering, listening to himself rhapsodize. His eyes were wild, always darting here and there, unable to focus on anything or on anyone. We saw Daniel infrequently, usually when he wanted to bum food off his brother. Mark wanted him to stay with us, but to my relief, Daniel resisted the idea. He'd disappear for days, waiting for Mark to fall asleep before he wandered off. Daniel had his theory about the Ice Age. A bomb, he thought. A quantum bomb. The project of the rogue R&D department of some corporate weapons manufacturer. He claimed his blogging community used to keep track of things like that. He said reality, physics, had been changed at a fundamental level. Old technologies no longer worked. We needed a new scientific paradigm. Other things might have changed, Our bodies might not work quite the same way anymore. Nature might have changed. The food chain. The air. Gravity. Daniel was a bit younger than I was. He certainly couldn't have been more than 15. He looked like the type who, before the Ice Age, got beat up on the way home from school. But the Ice Age had changed him. It had changed everyone. Daniel spoke with the intensity of the insane, a prophet desperate to convert his audience. He was full of shit, 
Daniel was as ignorant as the rest of us. Nobody could know the truth. Maybe the ice had really been caused by aliens or by magic or maybe God had sneezed or something. Probably, yes, it had been a bomb. Did it really matter? We couldn't bring back the dead. Besides, there was no proof anything beyond electrical technology had been affected. Fractals of quantum ice had erupted from the cores of our machines, from the wires that carried electricity, from the circuits and engines that fed on electric power. It had taken at most a few seconds between when everything stopped working and when the quantum ice appeared and expanded. The state of the world. This strange new ice age. Society had broken down. No social workers swooping down on orphaned kids. We had to take care of ourselves now. No more school. I didn't miss it. I didn't miss the jerks staring at my suddenly developed breasts. I didn't miss the other girls thinking I was too bookish and nerdy to be friends with. Some fears make you flee. Others make you stay. Mark said hundreds of thousands of people had already left the city. Many more must have died. At least a million people, we estimated. In hospitals, in cars, in elevators, on escalators, in front of computers, using appliances, snapping photos, shooting videos, taking food out of the fridge. Carrying a phone in your pocket meant ice bored into your pelvis. The technology that triggered the ice was everywhere. The corpses, too, were everywhere. The city should have reeked of rot and decay, but the ice preserved what it touched. I ignored the dead. Every day, no matter where we went, Mark and I saw the bodies claimed by the ice, but we never mentioned them. There were still thousands of survivors who had stayed behind. They wandered the streets, lost, alone, barely aware of each other. The cold seeped into everyone. Mark kept me warm, but I still hadn't thawed completely. I hadn't even cried yet. The placid coolness of the Ice Age, that utter absence of emotion, was almost comforting. Together, Mark and I fought off the encroaching cold. We played hide-and-seek in deserted malls. The electronics shops were frozen supernovas. We explored the metro tunnels. The flames of handheld torches, reflected on blooms of quantum ice, lit our way. We walked on rooftops, holding hands. The ice-encrusted city spread below us. At night, Mark spooned me. We went to bed with our clothes on. I took his hand and slipped it under my shirt, holding it tight against my stomach. He nuzzled my hair. He always woke before me, always came back with scavenged food. One day, maybe we'd kiss. Daniel acquired followers. He changed his name to Danny Quantum and started believing his own hype. It was creepy, the way these lost people gravitated toward him, obeyed him even. Orphan kids, 
businessmen in suits that had known better days, middle-aged women with hungry, desperate looks, cyber geeks bereft of their only lifeline. Daniel and his followers gathered in the heart of the city, on Montreal, below that monstrous thing that had once been a cross. Daniel turned it into the symbol of his new religion. He didn't use the word religion, but that's what it was. Mark brought me to Daniel's sermons. Daniel didn't use the word sermon, but that's what they were. Feel-good catchphrases tinted with Nietzsche. New-age gobbledygook rationalized with scientific jargon. Cyberpunk animism. Catholic pomp sprinkled with evangelical alarmism. Eroticized psychobabble. Robert Bly mixed with Timothy Leary. We'd climbed up some trees at the outer edge of the area where Danny Quantum's rapt disciples sat and listened to the sermon. We heard every word. Daniel knew how to pitch his voice. He was good at this. Too good. I said, Don't tell me you believe any of this nonsense. For the first time, it occurred to me that maybe I couldn't trust Mark. The cold seized my heart. He said, Of course not. But somebody has to keep an eye on Daniel. Who else is going to look out for him? Especially now. Mark looked away as he spoke. As far as Mark was aware, his brother was the only person he knew from before who'd survived the Ice Age, or who hadn't left without a word in the initial panic. That Daniel was scary, that he was dangerous, Mark wasn't ready to acknowledge. A fractalized airplane blocked the intersection of San Laurent and San Catherine, its tail propped up by the ice-encrusted building on the corner, the tip of its nose run through the storefront window of a store the ice had altered beyond recognition. Even the force of a plane crash couldn't shatter the quantum ice. Briefly, I wondered if it might have been Grandma's plane. Someone had painted a likeness of the transmogrified cross on the hole with the words, the quantum cross of the ice age below it. That day, everywhere we went, we noticed fresh graffiti of the quantum cross on the asphalt of the streets, on store windows, on sidewalks, on brick walls, on concrete blocks. The next day, Mark and I bicycled out to the airport and stared at the planes, massive dinosaurs with limbs of ice, gore, metal, and plastic. Before going home, neither my old home nor Mark's, but an abandoned townhouse near McGill University, whose windows faced away from Mount Royal. Mark wanted to check in on his little brother. These days, Daniel never left the mountain. His acolytes brought food to him, brought themselves to him. I complained. I'm too tired to bicycle all the way up there. More truthfully, I was increasingly queasy around Daniel and his sycophants, and I was eager to collapse in Mark's arms, even though the sun hadn't set. He insisted. So we wound our way up the sinuous gravel path, occasionally encountering Daniel's followers. Despite the cold, they wore white t-shirts, 
no coats, no jackets, no sweaters. On the shirts, in red, were crude drawings in thick, dripping lines, bloody effigies of the quantum cross. When we reached the cross itself, where Daniel's congregation assembled, I noticed that they were all dressed this way, no longer individuals but a hive functioning with a single mind, Danny Quantum's. First, I heard the singing. Mark had just beaten me at croquet for the third game in a row. I looked around, and then I spotted them. To the south of the croquet park, twenty or so people walking down the Jacques Cartier Bridge into Montreal. One of them pointed at us, and the group headed our way. They waved and kept on singing. I thought I recognized the song, something from the 1960s, the kind of stuff my parents listened to. Mark waved back. He said, Hold on to your mallet. If things get rough, swing for the head and knee them in the crotch. They seemed harmless. Approximately as many men as women. Long hair, handmade clothes, artsy, crafty jewelry, a bunch of latter-day hippies. The song wound down when they reached the edge of the park. I noticed a few of them looked more like bikers. I tightened my grip. Only one of them came up to us, the one who looked more Saturday night fever than hair. He said, Peace. Mark said, Hi. Where are you folks from? I'm from New York City, but we're from all over. Vermont, Ottawa, Maine, Sherbrooke. Mark asked, So, it's like this everywhere. It's like this everywhere we've been. The whole world has changed. So many tragic deaths. But he made it sound almost cheerful, like a TV ad. Mark grunted. Something about Saturday Night Fever. His calculating eyes, his used car salesman voice, made me distrust him immediately. Are you two youngsters alone? It's safer to stay in a large group. We're gathering people to form a commune, to survive in this new age, to repopulate. We need children, strong, healthy children. His eyes appraised me, lingering on my hips. I tensed my arms, ready to swing. Mark shifted, his body shielding me from Saturday Night Fever's gaze. Well... I wish you folks the best. It sounds like a great project. You and your friends should join us. We'd be happy to welcome you. He addressed Mark, but his eyes kept straying to my body. Thanks, but we're good here. This is home. Three of the men in the group were big, wrestler big. No way Mark and I could stop them if they decided to add me to their baby factory by force. Are you sure? Yeah. Anyway, we should be on our way. Good luck. Mark took my hand and we walked away. We held on to our mallets. Mark slept. He didn't know, but I'd stayed awake through the previous two nights. 
His mouth was slightly open, and he was almost snoring. I loved all of his sounds, even the silly ones. I traced his lips with my index finger. It didn't rouse him, but he moaned. It was a delicious noise. I stared at him all night, scrutinizing every detail of him. Dawn broke. As Mark stirred, I pretended to sleep. The night Danny Quantum and his followers started sacrificing cats and dogs, I told Mark, we have to leave. I was bundled under three layers of sweaters, but the cold still bit. Even the heat from the fires around the Quantum Cross couldn't keep me warm. I was tempted to lean into Mark for warmth, for comfort, but I needed to talk to him, and for that I had to stay focused. You tired? No, I mean, go away. Off the island. Leave all this behind. Find somewhere else to live. Somewhere far. Somewhere safer. I wanted him to say, yes, I'll go anywhere with you. He said, we'll protect Daniel. If I go, he'll just get worse. He'll be lost forever. Then talk to him. Make him stop this before... It's not that easy. Not that simple. He doesn't hear what he doesn't want to. This is his way of coping. We've all lost too much. You know where this is heading. Soon it'll be people being shish kebab to satisfy Danny Quantum's megalomania. To feed the hungry bellies of his flock. I didn't look at Mark... I didn't want his dark eyes to sway me. I stared at the fires burning at the foot of the quantum cross. I looked at Daniel, prancing and shouting, like the maniac that he was. I'm leaving tomorrow morning, getting away from Daniel. Far away. Find somewhere to grow food. Somewhere with fresh water. Head south, maybe. Could I leave without Mark? I wanted to kiss him. Would I ever? Even after all we'd shared, the cold still held our hearts in its grip. Don't, Martha. Don't make me choose. He turned his face away from mine and stared at his brother in the distance. When he continued, his voice was firm. Firm enough to sting. Besides, we've always lived in this city. What do you know about farming, or even about gathering food in the wild? We can learn how to survive? Despite myself, doubt had crept into my voice. Was I willing to stay and let this drama play out, despite its inevitable horrors? Wherever I would end up away from here, there might be other Saturday Night Fevers or Danny Quantums. Or maybe even worse. One of Danny's people handed Mark a wooden stick. There was a roasted, skewered cat on it. I said, Are you going to eat that? He said, I'll go with you. Anywhere. The wind on my face, the smell of grass and trees tickling my nose... 
I race down the deserted road. Mark is with me, laughing. I laugh too. In the fields there are cows, horses, dogs, sometimes people. Some of them wave at us, smiling. Some of them shoot at us, warning us away. We're not ready to stop yet. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Claude's. Claude, sir, what can I say? Welcome aboard, Starship Sova and Diana. Man, God just makes our show shine. Thank you. So, next up, like you say, it is Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, me girl. Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. Although today I'm going to be just a wee bit more presentist, and I hope you will come along for the ride. I'd like to start by sharing a personal invitation. I have good news to share, and hey, we're family, right? So I get to share that with you. A project that I have been very fortunate to be a part of that has been a year in the making, has come to fruition, and I would love to share that with you. A year ago at Worldcon in Kansas City, I met up with an old friend, Jason Sizemore, who is the editor-in-chief of Apex Magazine. Apex is, as you very well may know, a monthly science fiction fantasy and horror magazine that features original mind-bending short fiction from many of the top pros in the field. And it's been around for a good number of years now. It began as Apex Digest back in 2005. Well, while we were talking, Jason Sizemore very kindly invited me to guest edit a double issue of Apex Magazine, and that would be a thematic issue. It would focus purely on creators of Native American background. And that was, of course, a dream come true for me. And so I took him up on his kind offer. And that issue was published in August 2017. We called it A Celebration of Indigenous American Fantasists. This August 2017 issue of Apex Magazine. And I've got to say, I am so thrilled with how it turned out. The contributors who submitted things to me, who were kind enough to share their voices with me and with Apex. In the end, we have a stellar lineup that includes Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, Seminole, Okeawinge, Cree, Karuk, and Ojibwe voices. Stories by Rebecca Roanhorse and Allison Mills and Pamela Rintz and Mary Curisato, an essay by Daniel Heath Justice about specifically what he calls indigenous wonderworks, an excerpt from his forthcoming book, Why Indigenous Literatures Matter, an amazing cover art by Dana Tiger. And I'd like to invite you to check it out. It is now open, unlocked, and completely free online. You can buy it at Amazon and other places for your e-reader. I believe the double issue, which is approximately 150 pages, is $2.99 right now at the U.S. Amazon. You can also read it uh, for free at Apex's site, and that is apex-magazine.com. And you're looking for issue 99, which is August 2017. And also at the Apex Magazine podcast, I read one of the stories, a beautiful story called If a Bird Can Be a Ghost, 
by Allison Mills from this issue that is in episode 49 of the Apex Magazine podcast. Also, if you go to the page for the August 2017 issue, that is issue 99, there's also a link there directly to the podcast and to stream that narration. The stories truly are extraordinary, and they run the gamut of and blur the lines between science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And I'm just so very fortunate and delighted to be a part of this project. So please do consider yourself invited to check out the double issue of Apex Magazine from August 2017, Free and Online Indigenous American Fantasists, and that is issue 99. Now, this seemed like a good time for me to return to a subject I talked about some time ago in Looking Back on Genre History, and that is science fiction works written by Indigenous American authors. Previously, I talked about this in episode 171 of Starship Sofa. That is back January 11th, 2011. And I gave a rundown of some of the most important works of science fiction by Native American authors. And as you might imagine, a lot has happened since 2011. More, in fact, than I can talk about in the time that I have here. But I thought this would be a proper time to have a bit of a catch-up session and give you some recommendations of uh, science fiction that you might want to check out by indigenous authors. First of all, uh, a quick update on a couple of the authors I mentioned back on episode 171. One was Ojibwa author Drew Hayden Taylor. He has put out recently, uh, 2016, a collection of his speculative fiction short stories called Take Us to Your Chief and Other Stories. Uh, two thumbs up there something that you probably would like to check out. Also, Cherokee author Daniel H. Wilson, perhaps best known for his best-selling Robopocalypse series, is now back in the news. August 1st, 2017, a new book from him called The Clockwork Dynasty, an epic, ingenious new thriller from the New York Times best-selling author of Robopocalypse, the clockwork dynasty weaves a riveting path through history and a race of human-like machines that have been hiding among us for untold centuries. That's the official blurb. I have my hands on this book, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'm looking forward to it. The reviews overall have been quite positive, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Wilson does there. Now, I want to mention a few other works that you might want to check out that are related to this topic of Native American authors of science fiction and new since I mentioned uh, a breakdown of other works back in episode 171. First, online and free, again, two words I like a lot, from Strange Horizons at strangehorizons.com, I would recommend checking out a fantastic discussion from January 30th, 2017, Decolonizing Science Fiction and Imagining Futures, an Indigenous Futurisms Roundtable. And this includes some terrific authors. Rebecca Roanhorse, I've already mentioned her. She's in the Apex issue that I guest edited. She's an amazing author. Uh, Elizabeth Lapinsey, Johnny J., Darcy Little Badger, another author I admire quite a lot. 
a really interesting discussion of why indigenous futurisms matter. And here I'll give you a quick quote from Darcy Little Badger. She says, I think that imagining a future, period, is a great start. Please, please, please give me stories that acknowledge we survived the 1800s. I've had my fill of Apaches and Westerns and historical fantasies, which is saying a lot since Native American characters, even secondary ones, are so rare. Both in and outside fiction, we are pushed to the past tense. The reality is many indigenous cultures in North America survived an apocalypse. The key word is survived. Any future with us in it, triumphant and flourishing, is a hopeful one. Powerful words there from Darcy Little Badger. So that was from Strange Horizons, again, online and free. Also online and free. The issue on indigenous futurisms by extrapolation. Extrapolation, as you may know, was founded in 1959. It was the first journal to publish academic work on science fiction and fantasy. It continues to be a leading peer-reviewed international journal in specialized genre scholarship and in the literature of popular culture. So, if you go online, and to do this, you need to go to online.liverpooluniversitypress.co.uk slash L-O-I slash E-X-T-R, and you are at extrapolation. Or just Google extrapolation and Liverpool University Press, you'll find it. There was an entire issue devoted to indigenous futurisms, to studying and analyzing them, and that was Volume 57, Issue 1 and 2, which came out in 2016. There are essays like Indigenous Posthumans and Ghost Dances on Silver Screens, because this journal not only covers literature, but also uh, film and television and comic books and video games. So there's a lot of different kind of media represented in the subjects of the scholarship. At any rate, all of the essays are now online for free, so what you want to do is look up Extrapolations Issue on Indigenous Futurisms, Volume 57, Issue 1 and 2, from 2016. Now, if I could mention a couple of books that have come out recently that I would recommend if you're interested in looking at other works focused on Native American authors of science fiction. Bedside Press, in August 2016, published Love Beyond Body, Space, and Time, an indigenous LGBT sci-fi anthology, edited by Hope Nicholson. This includes science fiction stories by some great authors, Gwen Binaway, Richard Van Camp, uh, Daniel Heath Justice, and Mary Curisato, who are both in my guest-edited issue of Apex, lots of others. The blurb for this goes something like this. Love Beyond Body, Space, and Time is a collection of indigenous science fiction and urban fantasy focusing on LGBT and two-spirit characters. These stories range from a transgender woman undergoing an experimental transition process to young lovers separated through decades and meeting in their own far future. These are stories of machines and magic, love and self-love. And okay, this one isn't free. 
this collection, but it's very much worth reading. And when I checked it out yesterday, at least on the U.S. Amazon site, it was only $5 for the Kindle version, so not bad at all. Another recommendation for those of you who like your science fiction in comics form, two collections that began as Kickstarter projects, Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection, Volume 1, from 2015, and Volume 2 from 2017, published by Alternate History Comics, Inc. These collections bring together dozens of creators from across North America to contribute comic book stories showcasing the rich heritage and identity of indigenous storytelling, from traditional tales to exciting new visions of the future. Great stories, amazing art to accompany them. And one to be looking for to wrap up my books section here. This will be coming out in 2018, but I'm so excited about it, I'm going to tell you about it now anyway. From Simon & Schuster's Saga Press, the book Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse, I've already mentioned her earlier in this segment, set on a Navajo reservation in the near future, after the collapse of society. It will follow a young Navajo woman who hunts monsters with the help of an untested medicine man. Rebecca pitched the book as an indigenous Mad Max Fury Road. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to that a lot, let me say. To finish up my segment here, I'd like to mention two other online resources if you are interested in indigeneity in Native America and science fiction. The first is A Tribe Called Geek. This is a podcast, a website, blog with a full news feed, also a Twitter account, all dedicated to bringing, as the site says, indigenerdity to the geeks at the powwow. I love that. So this celebrates all sorts of nerdy and geeky interests and their intersections with Native America. So A Tribe Called Geek. Easiest way to find that, go to atribecalledgeek.com. And lastly, Indigenous Comic-Con. The very first one was held last year, was a big success. The next one will be November 10th through 12th in 2017 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They call it the Gathering of the Indigenerds. A number of folks have been talking about getting all the indigenous pop culture groups together in one place to celebrate and validate the work that's been done. Native Realities Publishing finally had the time and resources to make this event happen, and the rest is, or rather will be, history as the site says. Well, the first one was history, and you can go to the site and see images and video from that Comic-Con. And the next one, like I said, is forthcoming. And the website has lots of information about the kinds of authors and creators and storytellers and people related to pop culture who will be a part of that Comic-Con. And you can check that out at indigenouscomiccon.com. So, a quick recap here on Native America and science fiction, an update since my last looking back on genre history about that subject. I've mentioned the Indigenous Comic Con and a tribe called geek.com, looking ahead to Rebecca Runehorse's novel Trail of Lightning, and I recommended Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection Volumes 1 and 2, 
and Love Beyond Body, Space and Time, an Indigenous LGBT sci-fi anthology. And online for free, I recommended Extrapolations issue on Indigenous Futurisms. That was volume 57 from 2016. Also online and free, I recommended Strange Horizons, Decolonizing Science Fiction and Imagining Futures, an Indigenous Futurisms Roundtable from January 30th, 2017. I mentioned that some of the authors that I had talked about previously on Starship Sofa episode 171 have new works out, like Daniel H. Wilson's The Clockwork Dynasty and Drew Hayden Taylor's Take Us to Your Chief and Other Stories. And finally, I invited you to check out the double issue of Apex Magazine that I guest edited that is a celebration of indigenous American fantasists. That is the August 2017 issue, and you can find that at apex-magazine.com. And with that, I would like to say thank you for your kind time and attention. I've enjoyed catching up on some of the exciting things that have happened in Native American science fiction since I last talked to you on the subject. And I'm looking forward to talking about something completely different in our next meeting. So I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. Amy, I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Only when I say it, it's Ames, it feels like she's sitting right next to us. That's bizarre, you know what I mean? We've done this for kind of, Amy's been here since since the beginning, really. But it's lovely just to kind of, Ames! <laughs> As if like she's just next door putting a kettle on. Quick, it's on the telly! Ames! Anyway, I'm going. Don't forget, please support her. Patreon, please. Two quid, two fifty, a fiver, fiver, a five dollars. Just make we get, bring stories like this. This is a good example. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
If I could cast myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.